Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of the Potter's House in Virginia Beach. church with a worldwide vision for winning souls, making disciples, and planting churches. We're a Pentecostal church affiliated with the Christian Fellowship Ministries. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Thank you for that welcome. First Kings chapter 19, if you have your Bibles with you. Hallelujah. If I were you, I would just buy the MP3s. <laughs> I remember once I was in Tucson preaching the conference, and they had this big screen video of me behind me. I didn't know it. I'm just preaching. I didn't know that they were broadcasting my face up there. And I, at one point I turned around, I was like, oh, this isn't good. <laughs> Hallelujah. So, 1 Kings 19. You know, there are countless ways that you can destroy yourself. Suicide gives you all sorts of options. Guns, ropes, blades, poison, tall buildings, water, cars, fire, explosives. People come up with all kinds of ways to dispatch themselves. Self-destruct. You can destroy yourself socially by saying all the wrong things at the wrong time and always speaking your mind. Hello. You can also destroy yourself socially by treating people badly. You can destroy yourself uh, uh, economically by quitting a job because you had a bad day. Or you don't like it. You can destroy yourself economically by spending impulsively, running up credit cards, not thinking about it, and not tithing. You can destroy yourself medically by eating all the wrong things and carefully avoiding exercise. <laughs> you can destroy yourself mentally by giving yourself to various addictions be it drugs or drink or uh, pornography or whatever it is, you're, you're destroying your brain by your addiction. Whatever that addiction is, doesn't matter what it is, addictions destroy the mind. You can destroy yourself spiritually by backsliding. And at the end of the day, self-destruction is incredibly easy. There's so many ways you can do it. It's the old saying that any donkey can kick a barn down. It takes a craftsman to build it. Any donkey can destroy his life. And having said that, what is so striking to me when I think about that is how recognizable these things are. We see them coming. We know self-destruction by sight. 
And none of these things are set in stone. None of them are unavoidable. It's not like this giant monolith is coming and, and there's no way around it and there's no way to avoid it. Uh, there, are, there are endless possibilities to avoid self-destruction. And yet, it seems to me that as people start to enter into a certain mode and into a certain vein of thinking, uh, they embrace self-destruction with open arms. This is going to kill me. Oh, goody. I'm glad. And that's a very strange thing to me. Avoiding self-destruction truly is easy. And yet people destroy themselves with great regularity. I've been pastoring for many, many years. And I watch people who know better pull the pin. Watch people who have been touched by God. Watch people whose lives have been powerfully redeemed from, from absolute hopelessness. And here they are, set free, touched by God, empowered by God, with a destiny, and they pull the pin. Self-destruct. And it just is amazing to me. And then you consider all of the collateral damage and all the people that get destroyed with, with that one s stupid decision. And all the people that you love the most, or at least you say you love, but the truth of the matter is once the damage is done and there's nothing but corpses lying around you, you realize you didn't really love anybody but yourself. Because no one else entered into your mind as you moved into this final scene. And so all of these thoughts I'm pondering and I'm saying, why do people do this when there are so many options and it is so avoidable? And I understand there's probably a number of core issues, sin and the need to scratch that fleshly itch maybe. I don't know. But you know, it seems to me that there is a key player and a common denominator in self-destruction. There's a fuse that you light on the bomb that's going to blow you up. And that fuse is self-pity. And what I have seen again and again is men giving themselves to self-pity. God didn't do what I wanted him to. I didn't get the promotion I wanted. I wasn't recognized. It's not fair. Life's not fair. Blah, 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 blah. I mean, we can phrase it lots of different ways, but when you drill right down, it's self-pity. And here's the real catch, is that there's something in our fallen human nature that relishes self-pity. We like it. We don't want to admit it because we all recognize it as very ugly. When someone else is in the self-pity mode, you know, it's like, dude, pull your head out. <laughs> but we'll do it ourselves and feel completely justified. And so I want to think about self-pity with you from a portion of Scripture that's very familiar, but as I read it again, as is often the case in the Word of God. You can read, so I've been reading this Bible for 39 years. I don't know how many times I've read this particular story, but uh, there was a dimension in here that I've always missed, and God began to enlighten me. 
And uh, so I want to think about it with you in the life of Elijah, chapter 19 of 1 Kings, beginning with verse 1. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life, and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Mark that. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, came and sat down under a broom tree, and he prayed that he might die, and said, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night in the place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. Now, I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Then he said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. So it was, when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. Also you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and Elijah, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu will kill, and whoever escapes the sword of Jehu Elijah will kill. Yet, I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. 
Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, and I pray that you will anoint it, and you will cause it to accomplish the purpose wherewith you have sent it. I pray that you'll cause each one of us to carefully open our heart to your spirit, and help. Uh, you will help us, God, uh, to deal with the inner issues and the inner workings uh, that we are so prone to, this self-pity that destroys. I pray that you uproot this dimension of our lives and change our very natures, God. I pray tonight that you'll strengthen hands and teach them to make war. You'll cause men to rise up as men of God uh, and to lay aside all the excuses uh, and all the rationales uh, and all the self-pity and do the will of God. I pray, Father, that you will have your way. And if there are any here tonight that are not saved, uh, you'll touch them with salvation. You'll bring them to an altar of repentance uh, and transform them, God, uh, from sinner to saint and give them the destiny and the calling of Christ. I ask this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, uh, Amen. Amen. I hate to be the guy to break it to you tonight, but life is painful. Things happen. Caca occurs. <laughs> Amen. Job understood this better than any man in history, I believe. Having lost everything, all of his children, his wife had turned against him. He lost all of his wealth. He lost his health. There was really nothing left in Job's life that could go wrong. Everything had gone wrong. And he said, man is born for trouble like sparks fly upward. He said, it's a fact, it's a law, it's part of living. The truth of the matter is, you're not going to get through life unscathed. You're not going to get through life without brutal wounds. You're not going to get through life uh, without uh, uh, things happening to you that will threaten to sink your ship. And we read about people's tragedies every day you can't read the news without reading about something horrible happening to people and then we're so freaked out when it happens to us it's supposed to happen to everybody else that's for the other guy bad things aren't supposed to happen to me I'm a king's kid I'm supposed to get nothing but blessing well let me tell you that isn't true and the bottom line is you're going to experience things in life that are going to be enormously painful. They are going to test your mettle. They are going to uh, compel you to either find God or die. And you're either going to deal with these things correctly or you're going to do what most people do because most of us, just like a politician never wastes a good crisis, we never waste a, a good crisis in our life. We always mine it for all the self-pity we can milk out of it. It always becomes an opportunity to focus on me. And we feel absolutely justified in doing so. We can be the star of our drama without guilt. This, this is my moment. And we can feel all of these emotions and, and embrace them. Because we're justified in so doing. We've been victimized. We've been wounded. We've been hurt. Terrible 
horrible things have happened to us. And don't you know that many, many people will encourage your self-pity. Oh, pobrecito. Oh, mijo. Oh, it's so bad. It's so bad. I'm so sorry for you. Come here. And we milk it, man. So, yeah, that feels good. Tell me how bad I got it. Tell me how much I need your love and support. Hello. We, we revel in this stuff. And even if you don't have anybody that will come and, and uh, smother you in pity, you still feel absolutely advantaged to, to live this way, to think this way, because now you can tell your conscience to leave you alone. Listen, I am justified. It, what do you think I am, Spock? I have no emotions. I was hurt here. I was wounded. Don't talk to me that I'm overdoing this. Don't talk to me that I shouldn't be embracing this. This is my time of mourning. And we do it all the time. Whenever something bad happens, when we lose a job, when we lose the girl, when we lose the money, whatever it may be, we're justified. Elijah is indulging in this in spades in our text. Don't be sucked into this story thinking, oh, we, you know, it was so rough. Elijah, we'll see very clearly. Why was Elijah running from Jezebel to begin with? It wasn't fear. This guy is not a coward. He stood down the prophets of Baal. He knew full well what was going to happen if the fire didn't fall. This guy is not a wuss. He is not a coward. He is not a fearful man. And I've heard it preached, well, you know, there's nothing like Jezebel. You know, that's, that's a whole different class of terror. But uh, that's not true. I know all about the nuclear power of Jezebels. I've dealt with them. And I've seen them come, and I've seen them go. And the kingdom of God is left standing, and for all of their noise, they're not that big a threat. All right? Yeah, we... Ain't no women here tonight. We can... I meant what I said, and I believe that, uh, that Elijah, having the reference point of fire falling, having the reference point of, of the people rising up and slaying the prophets of Baal, he certainly could have believed God to handle this skinny little witch. Amen. I don't believe that's what's motivating him. What's motivating him is he's got an agenda underneath it. There was something at work in Elijah now he's got an excuse to run. He's got an excuse. It's justified. Well, she's going to kill me. She's going to kill you? I don't think so. I don't think you're really in danger. No, no, no. I don't think Elijah was running because he was afraid. I think he was running because he wanted to get under a broom tree and feel miserable. It's very telling that Elijah tells his servant to stay in Beersheba. Here's the only man that can speak into his life at this moment. Here's the only man that could say, Hey, Elijah, what are you doing? I don't doubt that he'd probably been hearing it 
on the road to Beersheba the whole way. Why are we running? Didn't we just see a great victory from God? And don't trouble me with the facts. And so on he goes, and finally he tells his servant, you wait here, because he doesn't want to be talked out of his pity party. He doesn't want to be talked out of feeling sorry for himself. And this is one of the first signs that you have, is when you start avoiding your pastor, you start avoiding men that you ran with, but now you don't want to be anywhere near them, because they're going to ask you, man, what are you doing? Why are you getting so funky? Why don't you come to prayer anymore? Why aren't you at service? No, what you do is you change your group of friends. And you go find some of the more carnal brothers in the church, and you hang out with them. Now you got the strokes going. you got everybody pitching in on your bad vibes. And, and the guys who would have stood up to you and said, you're out of your mind. You need to get back on board. They can't speak into your life because you left them in Beersheba. So here he finds himself under the, under the broom tree and he's just going to it, man. <laughs> oh, Lord. It is enough. Sounds like a woman. I've had enough. It is enough. Just kill me. I am no better than my fathers. I'm a loser. I'm a wretch. I'm useless. I was reading a book called uh, Biblical Counseling Keys. And there's a section in there on depression. And the author speaks of the language of depression. And I'm reading through this, and I'm thinking, you know, uh, this sounds a lot like songs in the key of self-pity. Because listen to, listen to what she writes. She says, uh, these are the common statements that you hear from people. I can't do anything right. Why should I even try? My usefulness is over. I hate myself. Look at so-and-so and how much better off they are. I must have done something wrong. Nobody loves me. I don't see any way out. It doesn't matter anyway. This is intolerable. It's not fair. I'm helpless to change it. I can't do anything about it. So what? Nothing will change. No one will ever love me. I have nothing to live for. It's hopeless. This is the language of depression. But I think more importantly, we have to diagnose the cause of that kind of depression. That depression comes straight from the pit and the poison of self-pity. Just listen to all those eyes. I, 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 I. It's all I. It's all I, 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 I. Everything in here, you don't hear one word about, you know what? God's great. God's got power. God can do anything. Uh, my life. My life. This is exactly what Elijah's doing. You know, it's incredible the way God tries to pull this man out. He sends an angel. And you guys had an angel come recently? I mean, this is incredible. God sends an angel to Elijah, and this angel cooks breakfast for him. That's incredible. And so he, 
He's down in his fetal position. <laughs> Just kill me, Lord. And here's this angel, and he bakes the bread, and he's got it all set for him, and he wakes him, and he says, Eat, Elijah. Okay. <laughs> then he eats, and then he goes back to bed. Isn't that incredible? You just had an angel serve you breakfast, and you're going to go back to bed. <laughs> Pull the sheets over your head. Feel miserable. So God sends him a second time. What a merciful God we serve. What a good God. Sends the angel. He didn't get it. Try again. So the angel, this time, you know, cooks him breakfast, and I, I, I think he mixed a little crank in there, a little speed, because because <laughs> obviously, you know, Elijah wasn't getting it, you know, he's just down there, and the, the angel's saying, man, what am I going to do to get this guy moving? So he mixes in a little crank, and the guy's good for 40 days. <laughs> I don't know what that angel put in there, man, but he's going. It's very supernatural. Amen. I've never eaten anything that could keep me going for 40 days. This is a very supernatural thing that has happened. And I don't doubt that he recognizes that. You can't miss it. Amen. Probably two, three days into it, he's going, man, what did that angel put in that bread? <laughs> this is good, man. I got some power. And yet, he runs, he moves, he gets to Horeb. And what does he do? He goes into a dark he goes back into darkness and he's sitting there in the back of the cave and God himself he doesn't send an angel God himself speaks into the cave he says what are you doing here this is not a question that God is looking for an answer for God is not confused. God knows exactly why he's in there. But he's making Elijah voice it. He's making Elijah look at it. What are you doing here, Elijah? That's the way you've got to read this. This, is, this isn't just inquiry. This is a rebuke. What are you doing in here? Come out. But it's very interesting as you read it. He doesn't really come out. He doesn't come out till after all the fireworks. The Bible says that when he heard these things, then he came out and stood in the mouth of the cave. But prior to that, I, the, my picture in my mind is God says to Elijah, what are you doing in here? And so he starts to run out his grievances. Yeah, nobody wants to live for God. Nobody's into this thing. See, he's justifying himself by accusing everybody else. That's a sure sign of self-pity and self-indulgence. These guys are all hypocrites. They all just act like they're really into this. But I know better. And they're all just like me, and nobody wants to serve God right now. I'm the only one left. Well, you don't look like you're doing too good a job, Elijah. <laughs> I'm the only one left. But I see him sitting in the cave at the back of the cave, and God says to him, come out. He's down here in in, in self-pity mode, he's bumming. Come out.
Hey there, Sermon Podcast listeners. This is Pastor Adam back with you again. Wanted to just take a second here to thank you once again for listening to this Sermon Podcast. We've had an explosive rate of growth and listenership for the past few weeks, and we hope that you appreciate these daily sermons to encourage you and help you. I just want to share a couple of ratings that we've gotten in the Apple Podcast application. Clint B. writes a five-star review. He said, I am so grateful for our fellowship. Thank you. This podcast, very helpful through the day. Uh, Bobby Sanford from North Carolina said, inspiring. Awesome to hear sermons that are encouraging and inspiring to the church. Uh, We could really use your help to add a couple more of these very helpful reviews. Uh, These do help us to get the word out about this podcast. I want you to know that we have a truly worldwide impact with this podcast from the United States to the UK, Australia, Ireland, Germany, New Zealand, South Africa, Netherlands, Canada, Romania, Afghanistan, Namibia, Vietnam, Switzerland, Kenya, India, Russia, Hong Kong, Ghana, Uganda, Guam, Meritus, Brazil, Puerto Rico, Mexico, Zambia, Japan, Jamaica, Malaysia, Israel, Ukraine. The list goes on and on of nations that are listening to these sermons. So we just want to say thank you for listening. Make sure that you're subscribed. Make sure that you're sharing these when you hear a good one. And please, if you haven't done so already, make sure you leave a five-star rating and a review of what you like about this podcast. Thank you again for listening, and back to the rest of the sermon. Right? Because he doesn't really come out. I mean, if God told you to come out, would you come out? Maybe you're dumber than Elijah. I'd come out. I'd come out. Whoa, you want me out? I'm here. Come out. And then there's the fireworks and the fire and the earthquake and the earth uh, shaking and and the storm and the lightning and the... uh, pieces of mountain being blown up and I, this is an incredible incredible display it really is and if this happened to any one of us we would be motivated but elijah is so consumed with his self-pity that when god speaks to him in his still small voice and the way i see it is he's right in his ear what are you I said, what are you doing here? And Elijah just reels off the exact same statement. Nothing has changed. After all of this, after the angel, after breakfast, after the speed, after everything, (laughs) nothing has changed. He's still bent on this. Not going to work. Nothing's going to work. This thing is a waste of my life and a waste of time. It's finished. It's consumed with self-pity. Hello? This is what happens when you give yourself to this spirit. You can no longer hear from God. You can no longer hear from anyone. You're in the zone. Elizabeth Elliot was the wife of Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott was a missionary in the 1950s who went into South America 
to evangelize an unreached tribe of Alka Indians. He'd been married for exactly two years, had one little girl, just a few months old, when the Alka Indians ambushed him in his bush plane, killed him and four other men or three other men, can't remember exactly, killed him. And here is Elizabeth Elliot left alone to raise a child, to fend for herself. She was trying to do the will of God. Jim was trying to do the will of God. This is a perfect opportunity. And I don't doubt that Elizabeth Elliot wrestled some things through. I don't doubt she had her moments of absolute despair and self-pity. And, and don't get me wrong. Listen, you lose your husband, you're going to mourn. You lose your wife, you're going to mourn. You lose a kid, you're going to mourn. I understand that. I understand natural grief. But we're not talking about natural grief. We're talking about moving beyond that. And listen to what she writes. Now, if, if somebody was going to fall for this at this point, she would be a, a perfect candidate. But she writes these words. Self-pity is a death that has no resurrection. Now think about that. Self-pity is a death that has no resurrection, a sinkhole from which no rescuing hand can drag you because you have chosen to sink. See, that's self-pity. You have written it off just like Elijah. Doesn't matter. God slew 400 prophets. Doesn't matter that the promises of God and the gifts of God are moving in this man's life. Uh, he has chosen to sink. He has chosen uh, to give up. This may be true of some of you here this evening. You've set your course. You've said, ah, you know what? I'm through. I was contending for ministry, but I'm not going to do that anymore. I didn't get what I wanted when I wanted it. I was witnessing to people, but nobody wants to get saved, so bag it. I was trying to work hard, but I got laid off. What's the point? I'll just go get on Obamacare. You've set your course, and no one's going to talk you out of it. Might as well die. You watch people gripped by this. You watch them start to fade in the church. At one point, they were on fire and contending, and now they're just, they're just fading. They're just fading little by little. And you know what's fascinating in this story, and this is what leapt out at me, is that Elijah pretty much gets what he asks for. He says, I'm through. This isn't going to work. I'm done. He has no real basis for this except self-pity. He's justified by his self-pity. God has sent angels, food, personal revelation. Elijah's position is, you're not going to change me. I'm not coming out of this. And so what does God say to him? God says, all right, good enough. Go back the way you came. Go back. Don't go forward. Go back the way you came. And make sure you anoint Haziel to be king and make sure Jehu's anointed and then I want you to anoint Elijah who is going to take over your job now. You're fired. 
And if you follow through from the end of this story, Elijah only prophesies twice in five years. And one of those situations is completely imposed on him. There's no way to avoid it. Elijah is recognized as one of the greatest prophets in Israel's history. And I'm not here to diminish this man's stature. But you know, men of great stature can fall prey to common illnesses. And here is a man of great stature who ends up going for the okey-doke. And God, it's very interesting to me the way this whole, the whole um, commission, or, or actually what we should call it is a decommission. Elijah is being decommissioned here. You're stepping down. You're going to go anoint your replacement on the way home. And he says these things to him. He tells him what he wants him to do. And then it's almost like as Elijah is setting off, he's done, he's He's going to go pray for the guy. And, and I believe this is why. It's, have you ever wondered why when Elijah threw his mantle on Elijah and Elijah is kind of enthusiastic and Elijah's response is so dark. What have I got to do with you? Do you ever wonder about that? Well, that's because his heart was funky. And here he is. He's on his way out. And it's like God says on the way out the door, oh, by the way, Mr. There's nobody in Israel that wants to serve God. I got 7,000. I got 7,000, buddy. You don't want to live for me? I got 7,000. Step into your shoes. I got 7,000 who aren't going to bow their knee. You go ahead and wuss out. I got 7,000 men. If that's the way you want to play it, play it that way. But I got 7,000. And so Elijah goes off and he ends his career technically. I understand there's still these couple other incidences, but his days are through. I'm thinking about this. God can work through any problem in life. I've been living for God for 39 years. I have had problems that you don't want to know about. Personally. I'm not even talking about the problems that come by way of the church. I'm just talking about my own life. And God has got me through those things. Some of them should have been fatal. But God in His grace and in His mercy was able to help me. He was able to forgive my sin. There is no failure that any one of you is capable of that God cannot redeem you from. There is no screw-up so severe that God just goes, he's a screw-up. <laughs> Nothing I can do about it. That isn't the God we serve. We serve a God uh, who can resurrect the dead. I mean, you don't get any worse off than that. <laughs> Repentance reverses failure. Do you know that? All you got to do is repent. All you got to do is say, God, I can't believe what an idiot I am. And God will say, well, I can. I've known you for years. You are an idiot. Now get up and get moving. Right? He can empower us and make us strong enough to slay a giant. 
He can move in our lives and preserve us, even in a lion's den, when everything is gone and done, and we're facing the jaws of a lion. God can step into that situation. He can save you from the belly of the whale that you created in your folly. He can preserve you and launch you into destiny. But you know what? He cannot compete with your unbelieving self-pity. That's where, that's where it all stops, right there. That's where everything grinds to a halt. Because at that point, I am no longer even desirous to be redeemed. I am not even desiring to get my life back on track. I'm too busy reveling in my misery. And the fact that nobody gets it and nobody understands me. Oh, and you know what? They're all going to call me a backslider. Well, yeah, that's what we're going to call you. You're right. Because that's what you are. The man who turned his back on the God who redeemed him and said, I don't care about the blood of Jesus. I don't care about the price paid for me. I'm hurt. I'm angry. I'm upset. Bag it. In fact, I think one of the payoffs in self-pity is the ability to accuse yourself of being such a loser that you get off the hook. I'm a miserable failure. I'm no better than my fathers. They were all a bunch of gangsters. Winos, drug addicts. I'm no better. I'm just the same kind. I'm cut from the same cloth. I'm destined for the same messed up life. I'm going to do the same stupid things they did. I'm no better than anybody. You know what you're doing? You're letting yourself off the hook of responsibility. You're just a loser, so why try? Congratulations. You have just neutered God, rendered Him impotent, and actually you can blame Him. You can blame him because he's the one who let you down. If you're going to disarm self-pity, which is our natural inclination when we get hurt, amen, nobody had to teach us this. This is, this is part of the fallen nature. I don't doubt that Adam and Eve left the garden and commiserated. <laughs> All we did was eat one little piece of fruit and it gave me gas for crying out loud I, isn't that enough <laughs> and from that point forward we've been dealing with this profound emotion and so I guarantee you there is not a man in this place that is not going to be handed an opportunity to give themselves to this spirit I said at the beginning life is painful and our experiences give us wonderful opportunities to be the star of our drama. And so if you're going to defeat this and disarm this spirit, there's a couple of things you've got to come to grips with. The first thing you've got to recognize is you are not as important as you think you are. The universe does not revolve around you. Life doesn't revolve around you. Let me tell you, there's seven, eight billion people on this planet. None of them even know you. <laughs> they could care less. Oh, you're having a bad day? Tough. I live in Sudan. You don't even know what a bad day is. 
Hello? So they're not impressed with your misery. Remember, self-pity centralizes self. Makes you the middle of everything. What you got to remember is that you really aren't all that important. And there are eternal issues in this life that are far more important than how you feel. How you feel is not the end all. How you feel doesn't determine anything. Listen to me. How you feel doesn't mean a thing. Oh, you're so heartless. No, I'm a man. And I understand that sometimes I got to face the foe and fire when I feel like absolute crap. When nothing in me wants to do anything, I got to rise up. And I got to do what I got to do. And God doesn't sit in heaven and go, Oh, 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 I... I feel so badly for you. You know what God said to Aaron when he burned his two sons to death? Poof! Crispy critters. He's looking at his two boys. They're these gnarled up, dead, burned bodies. It's a horror show. And it's his boys. And God says to Aaron, not a tear. Not a tear. I don't want a tear out of you. Your feelings are not all that important. And until you learn how to rise above your feelings, you'll be defeated by them. There are times when you go to work when you hate your job. There are times when you shut your mouth when your boss is asking for a black eye or worse. You just shut up and you eat it. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And you keep your heart right. There are times when you're not going to want to go home to your wife. End of discussion. You're just not going to want to do it. But you know what? You got to go home. You got to live with that woman. I just got a call this afternoon from a guy whose wife has twice called the cops on him. She provokes him. She pushes. She gets physical. He defends himself and he goes to jail. And he says to me on the phone, I can't go back to her. She does this one more time. I'm going to be in prison. Now, I understand. He's got his own issues. But I'm, I'm almost agreeing with him. <laughs> Everything in me is going, yeah, man. <sighs> yeah, maybe get a hotel somewhere for the rest of your life. I don't know. There are situations that are very difficult, but you're going to have to face them. Because that's life. And life isn't going to spare you. So you're going to have to realize that how you feel about it is irrelevant. One author writes, I am not here to serve myself. I am, here, I am not here to be lauded, petted, admired, or affirmed. I am here to build men, cultures, and kingdoms. When I find myself in the midst of difficulties and pain, will I persevere or will I become a coward and pity myself? We do not have time for self-pity. We have much to do, and the hour is late. We need a broader vision than just ourselves. We need to understand that we are at work to build Christ's kingdom 
for eternity. You know what's shocking about that paragraph? It was written by a woman who has more testosterone than a lot of guys I know. <laughs> Listen to me. There are souls at stake here. There is a testimony to your family, to your children, to your peers, to the people you work with. And every time you go off into this spin, you do damage to the possibility of their salvation. And you weaken the hands of the brethren around you. Every backslider has to be processed by those who are staying faithful. Every backslider leaves his mark on the way out. He pees on the threshold. And then we got to smell it every time we come into church and we got to think about why did they leave? Am I just wasting my time here? Am I spinning my wheels? Did you ever have a close ally in the trenches betray you? Leave the kingdom? Didn't it bring your faith into question? I understand. You're here still. But at the moment of the hit, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with guys. How could he do that? What, what's going on? I, what's going on? Is this going to happen to all of us? Are we all going to faint in the, in the process? Or we, is this a losing battle? See, every time somebody leaves, somebody else has to wrestle through the implications of that. Every time you decide, you know what, I'm not going to contend anymore. I'm just going to sit in the back, be carnal, snort and joke with my friends, read my phone while I'm supposed to be listening to the Word of God. And you used to be right down front here. You used to be right on fire. Now, you know, you've given away, what's the, what's the point? What's the use? I, I don't care anymore. I'm not even contending anymore. I'm pulling myself out. I'm pulling the pin. You become an example. People have been watching you. They've been watching your fire. Now they're watching your ice. And they've got to process that. Life is more important than you. People are more important than you. You're only one person. There's a whole lot more people. And they're more important than you. So that really bugged you. I can feel that one. I can feel that one. What, what do you mean? They're more important than me. Paul said that you are to esteem everybody in church higher than yourself. Everybody in church more important than you. You're the least important person in church. How does that make you feel? See, that's what you've got to embrace. You've got to say, absolutely. I am not important. The kingdom of God is important. I'm important to God, and that's really all that matters. He knows me, he sees me, and all I want to do is please him. I do not want to please myself, I want to please him. Your destiny is on the line. Elijah forfeited his ministry. He wasn't old enough to die. God came and picked him up in a chariot. And we all go, wow, that's really cool. And it is cool. And I can't explain all of that. No doubt God honored this man because he in his life had honored God. But I don't think he was ready to die. So God had to come pick him up. Again, that's a little weird theology, but you process that. <laughs> the bottom line is this. 
At this moment, God decommissions him. If instead, maybe the first breakfast from the angel, he had reversed his position. He had said, whoa, God, I am so sorry for being here. Or in the cave, the first time God said, what are you doing here? He had come out and said, you're right, God, I am really wrong. This is, I'm, I got a funky attitude. I repent. What other chapters could have been written out of Elijah's life? What other things could he have done? I mean, he already called fire down from heaven. This guy could have gone on and done great things. We know Elijah got a double portion. And he went and did some pretty mighty things himself. Okay? So maybe the very things Elijah did, God had originally charted for Elijah. But see, he pulled the pin on his destiny. He let his emotions guide him into self-destruction that was totally avoidable. Ecclesiastes 9.4 says, anyone who is among the living has hope. And then it goes on and says, even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. I love that verse. That is so Jewish. That, that has got so much wit in it. Even a live dog, a little chihuahua, is better off than a dead lion because there's still hope. There's still possibilities. Because until God calls you home, the world's in front of you. And the possibilities are endless. So you can pull the pin on your destiny and lose everything. But the truth of the matter is you can get this in your head. You know what? It could be a lot worse. I could be a dead lion. Whenever I get into this self-pity mode, I stop and I think it could be worse. The other thing you have to do if you're going to get the victory over self-pity is you've got to refocus your faith. Amen. Maybe you did fail, but God redeems. Maybe you are weak, but God is strong. Maybe Jezebel is after you. That's what you get from marrying her. Now go home and take your medicine. Actually, go home and tell Jezebel, as for me and my house, we're going to live for God. And this is what's going to go on here, is we're going to live for God. We're going to honor God. I'm going to love you. And I'm going to serve God with my whole heart. And you go ahead and throw your hissy fit. I'm going to be here when you're done. You know, what would have happened if Elijah had stood up to Jezebel and said, oh, you're going to kill me? Bring it. What would have happened? That, I mean, that would have diffused the whole problem, wouldn't it? That would have put an end to the issue right there. Well, I guess I'm not going to kill you. Sometimes that's all you really got to do with your wife. No, you're not going to let Miho get a tattoo. Yes, I am. He wants a tattoo over my dead body, honey. No, she's not going to the prom. Oh, but I live my life through her. Yeah, well, stop it and live for God. I can see this now. I am triggering all kinds of disasters. 
Make sure that when you stand up, you're standing up for righteousness in a spirit of meekness, loving your wife as the weaker vessel. Okay, <coughs> moving right along. <laughs> At the end of the day, if God can slay 400 prophets, he can take care of your problems. And that's all you got to understand. When, it doesn't matter what has happened. It doesn't matter how devastating it is. There is always a light at the end of the tunnel and his name is Jesus. And, and eventually you're going to be fine. You really are. You're going to make it if you don't decide to sink. I like what this lady said. I don't have time for self-pity. The hour is late. It ain't getting much later, boys. We're running out of time. We really, really are. The hour's late. We don't have time for self-pity. We need to be about our Father's business. So let's kill it tonight. I want every head bowed, every eye closed. Before I go any further, perhaps... We thank you again for listening. Do you want to receive updates from our church in your inbox? Make sure to sign up at our website, vbph.org. If this message has been a blessing to you, would you consider supporting our ministry with a generous donation? Please visit our website at vbph.org and scroll down to find the Give button at the bottom of the page. We would be so grateful for your support. Until next time, love God and love people.